0: One of my jobs in the army was that of an infantry reconnaissance scout. And one of the missions of an infantry scout is to go forward to the friendly lines into the enemy territory to get eyes on a particular enemy target. The purpose of the mission is to find out as much information as we can about this position. The information we need to gather included the number of soldiers at this position, what types of weapons did they have, how fortified was the position, where was a potential weak spot in security that would make a good point for breaching the wire for the good guys to come in. And all of the the information we gathered would would be given to commanders in charge so they could use it to make a battle plan. It was critical that we gave them as much correct, detailed information as we possibly could. The better informed the infantry soldiers were about the enemy, the better chances they had of not only surviving the battle, but of winning the battle. Going into battle blind, it happens, but it's the worst possible way to go into the battle. I'm afraid that many times as believers, we go into our spiritual battles blind. We have no idea what to expect from our spiritual enemies. Apart from some sort of a generic statement about the devil, we have no idea who our enemies actually are. We have... Since we don't know who our enemies are, we have no idea of what their capabilities are. Since we don't know who they are, what their capabilities are, we have no way to plan how to fight and defeat them. And that what happens is we end up being the ones that are defeated in the process. The sad part of this is that we do not have to go blind into the battle. What I'm going to do today is... Give you some, some good reconnaissance intel on who the enemies are that we as believers face in our spiritual battles. What their capabilities are and some practical ways that we can fight them. Now let's pray before we get into the message. Heavenly Father, we love you today and we praise you for your grace and goodness. We praise you for an opportunity to to gather and to study your word and to try to, to learn what we can. Father, help us today to lay aside the cares of life and help us to be focused upon you. Help us, God, to let your word be the authority in our lives that it would instruct us and teach us the way that we should go. Father, give us a a clarity of heart that we would receive your word and it would bring change into our lives. Help us, God, to see the battle as it is and to see what a part of it we are. God, I ask you today to fill me with your Holy Spirit and to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Lord, use me today to help your people fight these battles, be glorified in how we respond, the way we fight. Let us live in lives in victory, God, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, the Bible teaches that we have three... Main enemies that I'm going to call today the axis of evil. They are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So what we're going to do is look at the enemies, what they're capable of, and how we can find them. The first is the world. One of the main enemies Scripture teaches us about that we must fight is the world. The term world has been used in several different meanings in Scripture as we are using it today. It refers to the morally and spiritually corrupt system that is opposed to God and His reign. What are the parts of the world that we have to deal with? What? How does it appeal to us? How does it draw us away? That's what we're going to look at. Uh, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. That's page 942 if you have... A Pew Bible. John chapter 2 and verse 16, John warns us about this enemy of the world. He says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it is of the world. John gives us what we might call the three parts of the world. That we have to deal with. Uh, and we'll talk about each of them separately. First there is the, the lust of the flesh. We talk about the lust of the flesh. We often think of sexual immorality. Certainly that's a part of the lust of the flesh. But that's not all that the lust of the flesh is. The lust of the flesh is any desire. It usually is a, a right and a God-given desire. But it's a desire to satisfy it in, an, in a way that is Contrary to Scripture that goes against what God has said. Right? For instance, sexual desire. That is a God-given desire. There's nothing wrong with that. However, the problem comes when we seek to satisfy sexual desire outside the bonds that God has given us, the bonds of marriage. Any way besides God's way, it is the lust of the flesh and it is sin. Think about, say, eating. There, the, that is a, a natural God-given desire. Eating is not a problem until it becomes gluttony. The lust of the flesh tempts us to fulfill that, that natural desire in a way that is contrary to scripture. There is sleep, which we need, but sleep is not a problem until it becomes laziness. And so the lust of the flesh tempts us to satisfy our natural desire for rest in a way that is contrary to what God has said. And the lust of the flesh, it is it can be any number of things. There is no limit to what it is. It is just a a desire to satisfy a natural urge, a right urge, in a way that is contrary to to what God has said. That is the, the lust of the flesh. Then there is the lust of the eyes. Now the lust of the eyes is a, a, a desire. It is something that we see and then we want. Right? Now again, the, the seeing and the wanting is not necessarily a problem. The seeing and the wanting becomes a problem in, in one of two ways. First, the seeing and wanting becomes a problem when the wanting becomes the overall desire of our lives. Right, So if I see something and I want it, and then attaining that or acquiring it, that becomes the focus of my life. I begin to seek after that more than I seek after God. In that way, I'm sinning. In that way, I'm taking part of the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes also would be seeing something that we want that God has said we cannot have. Right? For one reason or another, God has said, thou shalt not, and we see it and we want it. That is a lust of the eyes that is leading us into sin. And then there is the pride of life. The pride of life is basically two things. One, it is a, a pride that causes me to want to be noticed. Right? That desire that makes me want to be the center of attention whether I want to be the center of attention because I think I'm better looking than everyone else, whether I want to be the center of attention because I think I'm smarter than everyone else, whether I want to be the center of attention because of how much money I make, the toys I have, the way that I'm dressed, whatever. Any desire that makes me want to say, look at me, that is a the pride of life and it's an attraction of the world and it is a sin. Another way the pride of life is seen is in just what we might call pride. The pride that makes us look down on others. It is a pride that causes us to think we are better than others for one reason or another. You think about in Scripture, the way it refers to pride sometimes is is by haughty. And the idea is so many times that pride causes us to look down our nose at other people, right? We think we're higher up than they are. We think we're better than they are. And so if there is anything, whether it's an achievement I've made, whether it's a house that I own, a job that I have, uh, anything, if it causes me to look at others who don't have what I have and think I'm better than you and to treat them badly because of it that is an attraction of the world and it is the pride of life now here's the problem with the things of the world we know all that stuff don't we right i mean the capabilities of the world is to put things before us that we want it is to put things in our lives to make us desire them we all know the lust of the flesh we all know what it is to desire something in ways that are contrary to God's will. We all know what it is to look at something and say, I have to have it no matter what. To make acquiring that the priority and the focus of our lives. We know what it is to say, I'm better than them. We know what it is to want people to look at us because of what we've done and what we have acquired. That is the attraction of the world. And John says that it, that it is not of the Father. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 16. It is not of the Father, but it is of the world. Right? So, if there is a, an attraction in our lives that it purely appeals to our flesh. Purely appeals to the lust of the eyes. Purely appeals to the pride of life. Here's what we can be certain of. That is not of God. Right? God never gives us anything that will lead us to do something contrary to His Word. God will never give us a desire to go outside our marriage. God will never give us a desire to violate His will as revealed in His Word. Anything that appeals to us on these levels, and on these levels alone, is of the world, It's not of God, and it's something that must be fought. It is a battle that we must fight. So how do we fight the world? Well, there's three things. First, love Christ and not the world. Look at what John says in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right, And the idea that we need to get from this is that when it comes to the things of the world... If I begin to give them my heart, if I begin to make them the focus of my life, they push out a love for God. And really there's a, a, a contrast. Either I can love God and devote myself to Him and it will push out that love of the world. Or I will love the world and I will devote myself to acquiring the things of the world and it will push out my love for God. And, and what we have to understand is that is a choice that we make. right? You and I, we are always going to face... The pull of these things. There's no getting around that. I'm not saying you're going to be able to pray a prayer today and say, God, help me to love you and I'll never face these, these attractions again. I'm not saying that that will never happen. Instead, what we have to do on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day basis is say, I love God more than I love those things, so I am not going to pursue those things. Instead, I'm going to pursue the things of God. I'm going to choose God over the world. Now... We do this on a daily basis with everything else in the world. Every day your alarm goes off and you want to stay in bed. But you choose to get up and go to work instead because you know that's the right thing to do. Every day, those that go to the gym say, I'm not going to the gym today. But they choose to because they think they value that more than they value not going to the gym. Those that try to eat right choose to eat right when they desire to eat cake because they they value what the the good diet will give them more than they value the cake. Those that are in college want to drop out and do something else, but they value what college will provide over the freedom that comes from not being in college. Every day, each and every one of us, we choose one thing over another all throughout our day. All day we do it. Spiritual life is no different. We have to choose one thing over another. We have to say, I love God more than I love the world. So I will, pursue the, I will pursue God and not the world. A second way is to treasure the eternal over the temporary. But look at what John says in verse 17. And this world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Whatever we desire that's in there, at some point that is going to pass away. It's temporary. And again, we know this. Right? At some point we've all bought a new computer. We've bought a new cell phone. And newer has come out. Better has come out. Right? We have desired something and then later on to find that it has worn out. It's not, it's not given what it was supposed to give. It has, it has fallen by the wayside. Anything that we can desire that's a part of this world, it is temporary. It will, at some point, lose its value. It will lose its looks. It will lose its appeal. It will lose the pleasure it can give. It will lose. And it will pass away. But those who do the will of God, those who value God and desire God and pursue God, that lasts forever. That is eternal. And we have to make that decision to say, you know what? Yes, this appeals to me today. But in ten years, it won't. In ten years, it will lose its value. Choosing God today, in ten years, that's still going to be valuable. In a hundred years, that's still going to be valuable. Two stories in the Bible that I think illustrate these two points before we go into the third is the story of a, a man named Zacchaeus from Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in the town of Jericho. And in his life... He had pursued stuff. He knew what it was to devote himself to the, the love of the world. He had cheated his own people to acquire his money. He was a boss over the tax collectors. He had it all. But One day Jesus was coming to Jericho and he wanted to see Jesus. So he climbed up in a tree and he looked down at Jesus. Jesus saw him, told him, come down, I'm going to eat at your house today. And he went. And he ate with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus at that point, he saw Jesus and he came to an understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ that all of Israel had been waiting for. And he stood up and he said, Lord, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have wronged anyone, I will restore it fourfold. Now, a couple of things about that. Giving half your possessions to the poor That's huge, especially if you have a lot, which Zacchaeus did. To restore fourfold was not required by the law. The the law required restitution, but not to that extent. And the fact is, Zacchaeus had cheated pretty much everybody in town. By the end of it, it is most likely that by the time Zacchaeus was through giving away half his possessions and restoring fourfold, he would be left broke himself. Why would he make such a decision? Jesus says it's because salvation had come into that house. You know what Zacchaeus did? He realized that he loved Jesus more than he loved the world, and he realized that what Jesus offered was more than the stuff that he had. He he valued the he treasured the eternal over the temporary. Then there's a, another story that's kind of the opposite. A rich young man comes to Jesus, kneels at his feet, and he wants to know how to have eternal life. Jesus says, "Keep the law." The guy says, "Which ones?" Jesus rattles off a few. The guy says, Pfft, Done it since the days of my youth. What do I still lack? Jesus said, sell all that you have, give your money to the poor, come and follow me, and I will give you riches in heaven. The Bible says that the rich young man went away very sad because he had great wealth. You know what he did? He loved the world, not Christ. He treasured the temporary, not the immortal, not the eternal. And every day, that's the choice that we face. If we're going to fight the world, we have to love Christ more than we love the world. If we're going to fight the world, we have to treasure the eternal, the eternal over the temporary. And then a final thing, is we have to let Christ shape our values and not the world. I don't know if you ever noticed, but the world at large has vastly different morals and values than the Bible says believers are supposed to have. It's in ethics, it's in integrity, it's in, in worship, it, it is in anything. You name any area of life, how we spend our time, how we react to people, how we prioritize our life, how we raise our children, how we spend our money, how we devote our lives. The world says one thing, the Bible says something vastly different. And always in our lives we're going to be pulled to, to secure a worldly mindset And the Bible warns us against this. And we're probably familiar with it from Romans 12.2. It says, be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What a great passage that is that we don't have time to get into. But instead, I want to show you a a paraphrase. This is my favorite paraphrase of Romans 12.2. It's from the message. Do not become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Now, just think about that for a second. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. Have you ever thought about what we say is right or wrong? What we do, how we prioritize our lives. Do the, do the priorities of our lives, the way we spend our money, spend our time, devote our lives, raise our children, act on the job, treat others. What does that show about us? Does it show that our minds have been renewed by the transform, our lives have been renewed By the transforming of our minds? Or does it show that we fit in with a culture without even really thinking about it? I mean, every, every aspect of our lives ought to seem odd to our unbelieving friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. They ought not understand why we treat others the way we do. They ought not understand why we prioritize our lives the way that we do. They ought not to look at it and say, well, that's just like me. Said they ought to look at all of our lives and say, huh, you're kind of different, ain't you? Right? Why? Because we fix our mind on God. We fix our attention on God. And as we fix our attention on God, He, He renews our minds. And the renewal of our mind, it produces a different value system than what the world has. As believers, the world is always going to be trying to force us into a particular value system. A particular way to believe right, wrong, good, bad. And we have to resist that. We have to fight against it. What we have to do is ensure that we are not so well adjusted to the world in which we live that we fit in without even thinking about it. Now, let me say quickly before we move on, there is no value in being weird for the sake of being weird. I worked with a guy once, and he was so over the top. I want to just put my Bible in a bag and not get it out. In the break room, they would have food out sometimes. And he would walk in there, and he'd be like, Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus! Right? And it was just like, He wasn't Hallelujah thanking Jesus. He wanted everybody to see that he was Hallelujah thanking Jesus. He was one of the weirdest people I ever knew, but not in a good way. That's not the goal. But the goal is not to go out and just be weird for the sake of being weird. The goal is to go out and have our mind and our hearts and our attention so fixed on God that we've been changed from the inside out and our value system has been transformed and we are Christ-like instead of worldly. If we want to fight the world, we have to love Christ more than we love the world. We have to treasure the eternal over the temporary, and we have to be sure that Jesus is shaping our values and not the world. Then the second enemy that we have to face, the second part of the axis of evil is our flesh if you 've been a part of the church for very long you 've heard of the flesh. The flesh is our it 's the part of us that really i guess is resistant to the rule of God in life. The flesh is the part of us that that has a propensity to sin right that part of us that says. No one is going to tell me what to do, not even God. That is our flesh. The flesh dominates us before we come to Jesus Christ. It, it enslaves us. But after we come to Christ, it doesn't go away. Instead, the Bible says this. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things that you wish. Right, now this is, this is our struggle as believers. If you have ever said, I want to do this for the Lord, I want to live for God, and then felt an immediate pull not to do that, that's the flesh. If you have said, I am going to pray, get up every morning, 30 minutes earlier, and I'm going to pray no matter what, and when the alarm went off, you said, I'll start tomorrow, that's the flesh. If you have ever said, I am going to make church a priority, And then said, "Mm, we'll do that next week. That's the flesh. Anytime there is a God-given desire in our life to do what God has commanded us to do in Scripture, there will be something within us that pulls against us. That says, not today. Not right now. Put it off. I'll give you an example from my life. I know, and for me, prayer is, a, a consistent time of prayer is the The number one most important spiritual discipline for my life that helps me feel close to God, be aware of His presence in my life. My very favorite thing to do is when I get here at eight o'clock in the morning is to come in here and pray in the sanctuary. I'd rather pray here than anywhere else in the world. And yet, we get here at eight, between eight and eight o five, and I think I'll just set up my computer because I've got my prayer in my, my prayer journal in my bag, and I think, oh, I'll just set up my computer. Before I go pray, and then I'll go pray after I get my computer set up. Cause my prayer journal is back to my computer anyway, so it's just a big, not, nothing big. So I get the computer set up, and then I'll think, oh wait, I wanted to, I wanted to look at this real quick on the internet. <laughs> and the internet, that massive time suck. And then I, I get on the internet, and it's like, hey wait, somebody, oh I got a, I got a Facebook alert, I better check what that is. And just one thing after another. And before I know it, it's nine o'clock, and there's kids coming over here for class. What have I done? I've just, I've let the flesh. I mean, it wasn't, God didn't tell me to do any of that stuff. God wasn't trying to keep me from prayer. My sinful nature was doing all that it could to keep me from praying because that is a God-given, godly desire. And in our lives, that pull is always going to be there. And, and, And the thing is, you know that. If you have ever tried to live for Jesus at all, you know the pull of the flesh. You may not have called it the pull of the flesh, but you know that internal pull that says, "Let's not do that. Let's give in to that temptation. Let's start tomorrow. Let's do it later. It's not that big of a deal. Let's not get carried away." We all have that. We have that fight going on within us. So how do we how do we fight? This battle in a way that we can win. Well, first, you have to reject the victim mentality. One of the problems with the lust of the flesh, this, the flesh that pulls, is its ability to make us think we can't help it. I, I told you about my prayer struggles do you know how many times after I have not prayed and I said, well, I'll pray at noon. I won't go eat lunch. And then I went and ate lunch instead. And at the end of the day, here's what I said. I was just too busy. I mean, it wasn't my fault. There was just, I just sat down for a minute and all this other stuff came upon me. And before I knew it, this is what happened. But you know what? That's really not true. It really was my fault. It really was me. I chose not to do what God wanted me to do and instead of embracing my responsibility i became a victim i just can't help it there's nothing i could do and a part of winning the battle with the flesh is rejecting the victim mentality and the reason we reject the victim mentality is because scripture teaches we are not enslaved by our flesh anymore Take some time this week and read Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. And a main thrust of Romans 6, 7, and 8 is that we are no longer slaves to our flesh any longer. We do not have to give in to it. We are, as I said in the Romans eight twelve, we are not debtors to the flesh to give in to its desires. We have no obligation. Let we'll me just give you one verse that I, I like. But God be thanks that though you were slaves of sin, right? That's, that's prior to conversion. Yet you obeyed from the heart the form of doctrine to which you were delivered. That's conversion. We believed the gospel and we were delivered. And having been set free from sin, we became slaves of righteousness. Here's the thing. We are not slaves to sin and the flesh anymore. We have the ability to say no. And the flesh does not dominate us, we choose to give in to its appeal. And if I ever want to have victory over the flesh, I must die to the victim mentality. The victim mentality is a slave mentality. The victim mentality says, I can't help it. It's not my fault. I didn't have a choice. There was no way around it. All of that must fully die if we are to have victory over the flesh. We must say, it's my responsibility. My choices led to this decision. My choices and my actions. It was me. Reject the victim mentality. Secondly, surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That passage says that the spirit and the flesh are both pulling at us. Right, they're, they're wrestling for control in our lives. Now, I grew up hearing that they were, fi- basically, that they were fighting one another. That the flesh and the spirit were locked in a death match. And, and and it was used things like, there are two pit bulls in a fight, or there's two wolves in a fight. And which one wins? What's the one that you feed. Right, And so feed the, the spirit and it will win. And I got to thinking about that, because I, I know I've taught that. And I got to thinking about that several years ago. I thought, here's the the Spirit that's in us, which is the Holy Spirit of God. All-powerful, almighty God who raised Jesus from the dead. And it's fighting with my flesh for victory. And I have to encourage the Spirit. I have to feed the Spirit so that it can win over my flesh. And you know, the more I thought about that, the less sense that it made. Because Satan is not God's equal. So, why would my flesh be God's equal? Here's what I've realized the Spirit and the flesh aren't fighting one another for control. They're fighting me for control, they're fighting you for control. the The Holy Spirit says to you go pray, read your Bible, resist that temptation, tell them about Christ, go to church, be generous. Right, the Spirit of God gives us all of these godly, right desires. And immediately the whole the, the flesh begins to say, Don't do that. Do it tomorrow. Do it in ten minutes. But if you give them money, what are you going to do if you need money later? The flesh then begins to, to pull in the opposite direction of the Spirit. So, in a lot of ways... Every day there's a tug of war going on inside of us, pulling in different directions. The Holy Spirit pulling us one way, the flesh pulling us another. Now which one wins? The one I surrender to. The one that wins is the one that I surrender to. Look at what Paul says in Galatians. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill The lust of the flesh. Do you know that the Spirit of God will never lead us to do anything contrary to the Word of God? The Spirit of God will never lead us to do something contrary to what God wants to do. The Spirit of God will never lead us to fulfill a lust of the flesh. A lust of the eyes or the pride of life. The Spirit of God will always lead us in a different direction. Now here's the hard part. Again, it goes back to rejecting the victim mentality, I think. As this struggle is going on within us, we have to actively choose to resist one and surrender to the other. So if, if God is dealing with me to come and pray, and I pray over here, and my flesh is saying, set up your computer and check Facebook or post your blog or do this really quick. Those are two contrary competing desires. So here's what I have to do. I have to choose which one I want to give into. And if I say, you know what, I want to pray then I have to actively resist the pull of the flesh and I have to actively surrender to the Holy Spirit to come and do what He wants me to do. But if I don't do that, then here's what I do. I actively resist the Holy Spirit leading me to do right things and I intentionally surrender to the flesh to go and do wrong things. And that's what we all do. We actively resist one, And we actively submit to another all throughout our day and all throughout our lives. And if we want to fight the flesh and win that battle, we must surrender to the leadership of the Holy Spirit because He will always be leading us in the right direction. We must always say no to the flesh and say yes to the Spirit of God and follow Him. And then finally, (laughs) that was anticlimactic, crucify the flesh. Crucify the flesh. The Bible gives us some uh, strong language about how to deal with our flesh. Galatians tells us this. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. There's a lot about this passage. One, notice that it says they have. It's a past tense. It's just the idea that those who belong to Christ realize the danger of the flesh with its passions and desires. And so they deal with it appropriately. They they put it to death. Now, how do we put it to death? How do we crucify the flesh? Or as Romans says, put it to death by the Spirit. How do we do it? There's a lot that would go into it. But I would say the main thing, the key, the overall key to crucifying the flesh is denying ourselves. That's that's not fun, is it? I don't know about you. I don't much care for that. But Here's the thing. Why do the... Why do the lusts of the flesh appeal to us? Why are we tempted by them? Because we want to do them. Right? There's a a desire within us to do these things. And so what do I have to do if I want to crucify the flesh? I have to say no to a desire that I have. I I mean, we all want to get to a place in our life where I mean, we're just so righteous and holy that Sin has no temptation, that we always pray and we always read our Bible and we always take advantage of every opportunity to share the gospel, that we just we just do everything exactly perfect. And it's, it's easy, but we're not ever probably going to get there in our lives. All throughout our lives, there is going to be that pull of the flesh to lead us to do otherwise. And so if I want to overcome the flesh, what I have to do is, I have to at some point deny myself. And if I am not willing to deny myself anything, then I am perpetually defeated spiritually. You cannot win a spiritual battle without denying yourself. It is not a possibility. Jesus said we can't even follow Him without denying ourselves. We must deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Him. That is a part of basic follow Jesus 101. It's a part of life. And if I want to crucify the flesh and have victory over my sinful desires, then at some point I have to say no to it. I have to deny it. And one of the things also that stands out is that Paul says, not just the, the action, but notice what he says, the flesh with its passions and desires. And this is where it gets even more difficult. Because denying the action is good, but that is not completely what it means by crucifying the flesh. I also have to deny the passion and the desires. Let me give you an example. Let's say... I want to say something hateful to Scott. But I choose not to. Rather than say it, I tell Michael about it. I don't say it to Scott, right, because I've denied the action. But instead I, I tell it to Michael and just kind of giggle about it because it was funny what I would have said. Could you imagine the look on his face? right? Or or I don't even tell Michael or Kelly. I just sit and think about it. I would have said this and he would have been like, what? I would have been like, blah, blah. Oh, it would have been hysterical. What am I doing? I'm giving in to the passion and the desire, aren't I? I'm not crucifying it. All I'm doing is giving it strength in my life. It is there. It's always there working and trying to come to the top. Say there's a little juicy bit of gossip that I know about. But I don't tell it. Instead, I just think about what I know that other people don't know. If only you knew what I knew. But I can't tell you it was given to me in private. I'm not crucifying it with its passion and desires. I have to put those things away as well. What if, what if someone, what if I'm tempted to sexual sin, but I don't do it instead? I just think about it. I'm failing. I'm giving it strength in my life. I, I need to crucify not only the action, but the desire. And you say, but I can't help the thoughts that come into my head. And I'll grant you that one. We cannot control every thought that comes through our brain. But here's what you and I can do. We can choose not to focus on it. We can choose not to sit and dwell and meditate on it. We can fill our minds with other things instead. We can read our Bibles. We can listen to worship music. We can pray. We can ask somebody to help us. We can do any number of things to get that thought out of our head. But if we are not willing to crucify it with its passions and desires... We will be defeated, and here's why. The longer I think about something, the more strength I give it in my life. So let's go back to that hateful thought about Scott. I just keep thinking about it for days and days and days. You know what will eventually happen? An opportunity will arise for me to say it again. And when it does, guess what I'll do? Because I've thought about it all week long. I'll say it and then be go, haha, wasn't that funny? It was just a joke. I didn't really mean it, right? If I've got gossip. And I keep thinking about it. Eventually the opportunity will come up as a, right, as Christians, we don't gossip. What do we do? We share prayer requests. Right. I'd like you to pray for Melissa Red, because here's what I heard. Now, I can't confirm it, but here's what I heard. But right. I've, I've thought about it long enough and now it's come out. Do you know everybody that, that cheats on their spouse, that when they're honest about it later on, it didn't just happen? You know what they did for days and weeks and months before they, the action happened? They thought about what it would be like. And they gave it strength in their life. And then eventually the action flowed. We have to crucify it with its passions and desires. We have to find a way to get the thought out of our minds when we think about it. And that is those three things we reject the victim mentality, it really is our fault. We choose to surrender to the Holy Spirit, and then we crucify the flesh we overcome it. And then the last one is the devil. The Bible tells us a lot about the devil. The Bible says that he is a, a tempter. Matthew 4.1 is great to read. Because what I always take from it is if he has the audacity to go and try to tempt Jesus to sin, he's certainly not going to be slightly bothered to come and try to tempt you right to sin. Right? He, he went to Jesus and he appealed to him to lead him into sin. Satan is, is a liar. The father of lies. That is his natural language, the Bible says. Everything Satan tells us is a lie. When he tells us that sin is freedom, it's a lie. When he tells us to do this instead of that, it's a lie. His all, all that he says, it's always a lie. He is a thief that comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. No matter what he is bringing into our lives, no matter what he is trying to get us to do, there is one purpose behind it. To steal, to kill. To destroy us. He's always looking for an opportunity to destroy us. Peter says he's like a, a roaring lion prowling about. Seeking someone to devour. Uh, just looking for the right opportunity. And, and we even see that with Jesus. The temptation of Jesus. Because the Bible says that after he attempted Jesus. And Jesus resisted him. He left. And he would come back though at a more opportune time. That's so what that means is. He is always kind of at the edges of things. Looking for the opportunity. We may overcome this time, but that doesn't mean we've won the, the major battle. He's still there, always at work. The Bible said he is the, Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. His lies lead people away from Christ, lead people away from the gospel, and away from salvation. And when we take all of these and we kind of put it together, and this is just a small sampling, what we find is that Satan, he hates you and he hates me. And as a destroyer, his one goal in life is to destroy you and to destroy me. But he's not overly picky. See, if he can't destroy me, he'll be happy to destroy my marriage. And if he can't destroy my marriage, he'll be be more than happy to destroy my children. And, And in years to come, many, many years to come, he'll be happy to destroy my grandchildren. He'll be happy to destroy my friendships. He'll be happy to destroy our church. He'll be happy to destroy you. Or your marriage. Or your children. Or your grandchildren. Or your integrity. Or your relationship with Christ. Or your relationship with your children. He'll be happy to destroy in any way that he can. That is his one goal and desire. In our lives. To seek and to destroy in any way that he can. Now, that's not, a, it's not just like the happiest thought you've had today, is it? There's a being of immense power and ultimate evil that seeks my destruction. Yay, I'm going to go home skipping and singing now, right? I mean, that's just a, not the happy thought. So how do we fight him? Because that, that's a part of the spiritual battle. Here's what the Bible says. Submit and Resist. If you pick up a book on spiritual warfare, most of them will tell you various ways to bind Satan out of your life. To bind him and rebuke him and cast him out and things along those lines. And those things are very interesting to read. But when you get right down to what scripture says, let me give you an example I guess. A guy that I I knew on the internet, I followed him on the internet, got caught in a bad sin. And he wanted help to overcome it. So he went to someone that was a spiritual warfare specialist. I don't know where you go to school for that, but that's what he was. And a part of the battle, here's what he had him do. In order to to fight Satan, he came into a church. And he came up on the stage. And he laid down, and they had drawn a cross on on the floor. And he laid down in a crucifix position... And while people prayed in another room and prayed around him, they poured water over him and banished Satan from his life. Now, I'm sure that was an experience. And I'm sure if the guy wrote a book, it would sell. But I challenge you. Show me the Bible where the apostles ever had somebody lay in the crucifix position and then poured water on them. Show me in the Bible where... Where the apostles or the disciples after them spent a lot of time rebuking the devil. Or binding him. Or casting him out. You know, you won't find a lot of that. you know what you find in the Bible? Therefore submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's the thing about that though. That's not sexy. That's not, that's not exciting. It's a whole lot better to find a book that tells you to read a certain prayer and toss holy water in the air and toss salt over your left shoulder and, and then you cast Satan out of your house. Put holy oil around the windows. The Bible doesn't say to do any of that stuff. The Bible says submit to God and resist the devil. I mean, it's just basic stuff. That's not anything exciting. Submit to God. What's that mean? That means do what God wants me to do. That's it. That means when I feel tempted to do something the Bible says not to do, I submit to God and I do what He wanted me to do instead. And when I feel pulled to do something wrong, I resist that and I submit to God instead. That's what the Bible tells us to do. That is the main way we are ever going to fight the devil. We're not going to bind him. We're not going to cast him out. There's no prayer that we can pray that will get him out of Gaiman and make him go into another part of the world. Here's what we do submit to what God wants us to do. We resist the devil. He will flee from us. See, the thing is, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, that there's no temptation taken us that is special and unique to us. It's common to all people. But with every temptation, God is faithful to provide a way out. So every temptation we face from, for all of our lives, this afternoon we're going to face a temptation of one sort or another. And in that time... There will be a God-ordained way to get out of it. To walk away from the conversation. To turn the TV off. To close the laptop. To get rid of the book. To do something. There will be a way to get out of it. And in that temptation, what we do to fight the devil, who's kind of behind it, is we submit to God, take his way out, and we resist that temptation. And the devil will flee from us. We don't rebuke him. We don't tap a... Satan, I rebuke thee from my life on Facebook type of thing. We just, we just submit to God. And we just resist the devil. And that's more than he can take. He will flee from us. That's what's required. That's what's done. We're going to start next week looking, I believe, at the Ephesians six ten through 18. The armor of God. Over and over again in that passage, we're not told to do anything fancy. We're told to be strong in the Lord, the power of His might, stand. We're not even necessarily told to advance, just, just stand. There aren't secret keys to overcoming. There aren't hidden tricks to spiritual victory. There are basic things that you do, and you do them over. Over again. I mean, we went back over the world, the flesh, and the devil. How many times have we seen that we're supposed to submit to one thing and resist another? Every time. Submitting and resisting. It's not, exi- it's not exciting. It's not new. That's what works. That is a God-promised way to win the battle. God's Word guarantees if we submit to Him... We resist the devil. We will always, always win the battle. We don't need to do. We just need to do what we know to do. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.